Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on current events, end time events, and religious liberty. And we have a special returning guest, Elder Dwayne Lemon. Elder Lemon, I know your time is valuable. Thank you so much for coming back to our podcast again. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, Elder Lemon, a lot has been going on. Is that right? A whole lot. (laughs) And uh, we're in the midst of a controversy right now in regards to how should Adventists respond to the social crisis that are facing this nation? Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of, you really would have to have your head buried deeply in the sand to not see that we are in a crisis that requires the attention of God's people. And there's no question that social justice, um, addressing the racial divide, all of these things are agitations that we really need to give balance, counsel, and overall our attention to. Now, some of our brethren are asserting that the word social justice is rooted in communism and Marxism, and that racism is a fiction, and that it is a liberal agenda. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is I understand why someone naturally would go in that direction because there are individuals that are advocates of social justice that very much go in that direction. However, like many terms, probably one we can all relate to, the Trinity. You know, when you use the word the Trinity or Trinity, a lot of times, you know, the mind can go in a certain direction that may reference principles related to Roman Catholicism. However, If you just take a raw look at the word Trinity, it just simply means a group of three. And when we look at it from that perspective, then we don't have a problem with that because as Seventh-day Adventists, we understand that there is a Godhead and the Godhead is a group of three co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In like manner, when somebody says social justice, there's a natural way the mind goes where we think of Cortez, we think of the Candace Owen arguments, we think of many, many political figures and political issues. And I understand because that's kind of in our face quite a bit if you're watching the news. But when you use the term social justice, it does not mean the Marxism and communism and all these other areas. We're really dealing with what the raw term means. Justice amidst social events. And the Bible is an absolute teacher of social justice in that context. And so what we have to do is not allow our minds to go naturally to the prejudices that are in our world today. We need to just sit back and say, okay, what are you saying? And when somebody uses the term, let's qualify it. What do you mean by social justice? And then as you listen to the explanation, hopefully by God's grace, it'll broaden the mind and say, oh, okay, you're not going in that direction. You're speaking more in a biblical pattern. And that's for sure what a lot of us have been doing, speaking of social justice in the context of the word of God. Now, Desire of Ages 509 is being used to state to those that want to speak out against racism and oppression of minorities that this is not our work to do. In fact, I remember a few years ago when the Trayvon Martin case came on the scene and the verdict was rendered, I actually posted this on my Facebook immediately after the verdict because of what was stated there. Now, can you explain to me that quote? I can. And, you know, let me say this real quick before I do that. You know, I appreciate what you just said, because I did the same thing, Peter. It's like I think what's very important 
as ministers is not only to speak of that which we do right, but sometimes it's okay to reference that which we may have done wrong. Or, you know, maybe we've misunderstood. And I, too, have used the quote from Desire of Ages 509 to kind of encourage God's people, hey, let's just preach the gospel with power and let's not get caught up into any of the quote-unquote social justice issues. They'll kind of take care of themselves. And, you know, I did it very innocently. And knowing you, I would imagine you did it very innocently. But like the Lord often does with his workers is he, you know, challenges us and he makes us look more carefully and prayerfully at the various quotes that we read. And then he introduces to us what he really was saying. And then it's important to come back with the greater light, that greater understanding and say, you know, I used to advocate such and such. Today, I now understand it differently. Let me show you why. And so it is that when you look at Desire of Ages 509, probably more than anything else, even though you mentioned paragraph one, really paragraph three is probably the, the most popular segment of Desire of Ages 509 that is used. And here's what it says. It says, the government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. This is the quote that I'm sure you quoted. I in the past have quoted. Uh, unfortunately, many are quoting today as it relates to the most recent atrocities of you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, even now Mr. Brooks, um, David Cooper, and, and the list just goes on. So right now, this is a quote that's being used. And, you know, I would like to assume or hope that, you know, people are innocently quoting it like you and I innocently quoted it in times past. Nevertheless, I remember a statement from the book uh, Bible Readings for the Home, 300 Topics in Question and Answer Form. And I remember one of the statements that is said in there about sound doctrine. And it said, sincerity may be a virtue, but it is not the test of sound doctrine. And I remember that. And I said, wow, that's a deep point. And I think many people are quoting this sincerely. And so while they're not worthy of condemnation, they are worthy of correction. And so this is kind of like, like why I did this message was to correct, not so much to condemn, but to correct a misunderstanding of what this quote uh, is saying. So how did you arrive at this conclusion of a complete understanding of this quote? Well, like most gospel workers, if you studied the Bible, then you learn to study the scripture as a whole. You don't just pick a verse or pick a quote um, and just kind of run with it and create a doctrine or a teaching. So there were a few things from the biblical standpoint. In Exodus 21, you know, we know that the judgments that God gave to the children of Israel was basically taking the Ten Commandments and making them practical in day-to-day -day life. And when you look at Exodus 21 through 24, you just see all of this layout of judgments. 
and again, taking the principles of the Ten Commandments and making it practical to day-to-day living. And you would see that God had judges and God would say, you know, if people do certain things, especially when you read in the book of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 19, when people would interact in certain ways, there were these judgments that would fall on them. And there were times that the judges of the nations would get involved. And there were very severe consequences for if a person was raped, if a person was molested, if a person was ill-treated, if a person was ridiculed or prejudged as a result of nationality. You know, you would see God visiting these iniquities. You would see God literally speaking against these things and executing sometimes the harshest of judgment, which would be execution. Then when I would read uh, Romans 13, You know, and the fact that God set up governmental powers in verse four, he calls them his minister twice. And he says that the purpose of this minister, the governmental ruling powers, was to put a check on evil action and evil behavior. Well, when I would look at those verses and then, of course, when you look at the history of our church, you know, our people were abolitionists. They were activists. They would vote against issues. They would see things that would endanger a neighborhood or endanger a people. And again, it was even dealing with, as termed in inspiration, it would be called the colored race or the colored people. Today, we'll call them black people. You know, you would see this advocacy of standing up, uh, sometimes, if necessary, going to law. You know, and so when I thought about it as a whole, I said to myself, well, then how can I come away with this quote and, and what it's saying? Because one thing I firmly believe is that the Bible and the inspired writings of Ellen White do not contradict each other. And so that's what kind of launched me into this investigation to say, look, if I read this quote, Desire of Ages 509, paragraph three, just for face value, without reading paragraphs before, paragraphs after, understanding the context of the chapter, it's very easy to walk away and say, man, let's just preach. Let's just do that. But when I compare it to the writer, herself and her mindset as revealed through her writings in other areas, as well as the spirit that inspired her and what that spirit moved upon the heart of Moses and the writing of the first five books of the Bible. I just said, no, 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 no. There, there has to be something more to this. And that's what made me start looking deeper into the quote. So can you share with us the context of that quote? You know, you see people use these quotes A lot of times, you know, again, they may be doing it innocently, but I believe God gives us his word that we might be challenged. Now, there are two issues that I have with how this quote has often been used. The first issue is just looking directly at the quote. So if we look directly at the quote, just that very bottom uh, paragraph three, but if we were to look just at the statement where it says he who was our example, let's notice this. It says, he who was our example kept aloof from earthly governance, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. One of my first issues was, if we're using this quote to say our goal is not to address in any stretch uh, you know, politics or any stretch of social justice issues in communities, going to civil powers at times and in appropriate matters, discussing of where they can better function in their roles to bless and address the issues in uh, that particular part of society. If you believe that, then that means that you also believe that you individually should be working amidst those societies. So 
that's what Jesus did. He worked individually in the various societies where the oppression, where the governmental powers were corrupt. And he worked very feverishly for the help, benefit, blessing, and salvation of these people. A lot of the people who are quoting Desire of Ages 509, paragraph three, in relation to the racial agitations of our day, are not doing that. They are not going into the Black communities. They are not going to individuals in the Black communities and trying to demonstrate love and care and the desire for redemption and salvation and actual help. They're not even doing that. And so I found it to be very insulting, quite honestly, when I began to really think through people using this quote because I saw that it was really used as an escape of responsibility. It was more so like, because, you know, and, and I'm going to say this, if you're white and then you quote Desire of Ages 509 paragraph three to, let's say, address those in the black community or anybody else who believes in going to government or addressing laws and trying to bring about certain reforms amidst civilians. If you are using this quote for that, then you really, of all people, should be in those communities demonstrating love, demonstrating help, giving of your resources, and the list goes on. Which again, by and large, you don't see a lot of people, especially white people doing that. And so that's a problem. That's a very serious problem. That's something that people should think about and say, man, if I'm going to quote Desire of Ages 509, let me do the work that I'm quoting in it. I want to go ahead and reach people individually and be there to reach their hearts. And a lot of people aren't doing that. And it's not just to white people. It's to a lot of black people because black people are quoting this too. Hispanic were quoting this, Asian were quoting this. And a lot of us, of all these various nationalities, we are not in these communities on a regular basis, reaching people individually, trying to win their hearts. We're not even doing that. So I think God really kind of exposed ourselves through this by showing, man, we're not even doing what the quote says, even though we're using the quote to tell everybody what to do. And so that was like contradictory, possible hypocritical issue number one. You know, if you're going to quote this and if you really believe that this is saying hands off on any type of civil reform, let's just work for the salvation of people and work for the betterment of others. I hope that I see you in these neighborhoods doing this exact work. For if you're not, then your quote proves itself disingenuine. So that, that was kind of the first issue. The second issue, however, was more so looking directly at the quote. When you understand that the whole entire chapter, like if you just look at the chapter, the chapter is titled in chapter 54 of Desire of Ages, it's called Not With Outward Show. That's the title of the chapter. It's built on Luke 17, 20 through 22. Now, one of the things that's beautiful about the quote, and you know, I won't be able to just do the full exegesis on this, but I'm just giving some highlights. When it says in verse 20, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God comes not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Okay. So when Jesus makes this statement, he's letting them know you're looking for an external kingdom where there's this rulership and this mass takeover of the oppressors. And finally, the oppressors become oppressed 
under righteousness, which is the king has now set up his kingdom. And now they, of course, the Jews are in part and parcel with the king and the kingdom. And now the oppressors are the ones that's now going to be oppressed. They're going to get punishment and all these things. And the laws of God are going to be established and everybody has to live by them. Otherwise, you perish. And the list goes on. And this was the mindset of these Pharisees when they're coming to Jesus. And so Jesus talks about, no, 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 this kingdom that I'm talking about right now is not with outward observation, but it's one that's dealing more so with what's within. So the bottom line is, Peter, all we have to do is look at the fact that the, the Bible shows very clearly Jesus has come to establish two kingdoms. There are many verses to substantiate this. There are two kingdoms. One is what we would call the kingdom of glory. And you can see that especially in Psalms 145, 11 to 13. You know, the kingdom of glory. But then there's also another kingdom that the Bible speaks of. And when you look at 2 Samuel 7... In verse 16, and it gives a beautiful point about how every uh, kingdom has to have a throne. You know, every throne has to have a king. And therefore, whenever you hear about throne language, it is associated with a kingdom. And therefore, it is associated with a king. And so when the Bible says in Hebrews 4 and verse 16, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. You cannot have a throne of grace without a king of grace. And you cannot have a throne and a king of grace without a kingdom of grace. And so the first kingdom that Jesus was seeking to establish in the hearts of men could not be done by force. It could not be done by coercion. It could not be done by you better do it else there's these penalties that you'll suffer. It had to be of a willingness of the heart, free will. This was the first kingdom that Jesus came to establish, which is to be established within us. And the reason why this kingdom had to be first is because we are saved by grace, this kingdom of grace that God wants to demonstrate to you and to me and to the humanity. We're saved by grace. But the Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, the only people that enter the kingdom of glory are those who are already saved. So the kingdom of grace has to be established first so that we can enter eventually into the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of grace is internal. The kingdom of glory is external. The Jews were looking forward for that external kingdom to be set up. But it was the kingdom of grace that Jesus came first to set up. And so this was an issue amongst not only the Pharisees, but even the disciples. They did not understand the kingdom. That's why even after Jesus was resurrected in Acts chapter one, they said, Lord, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And, you know, Jesus once again has to let them know, look, guys, this is not for you to worry about. But I want you to tarry. I want you to enter the upper room experience. And I want you to just pray and wait for the spirit of God to fall upon you and then go preach the gospel. And so it is that when we consider this, if you just go up a couple of paragraphs to Desire of Ages, page 509, and now we're going to look at paragraph one and then take it down to paragraph three, we can begin to more contextualize what we read in paragraph three to really understand it. So here we go. It says in Desire of Ages 509, paragraph one, the kingdom of God comes not with outward show. The gospel of the grace of God with its spirit of self-abnegation 
can never be in harmony with the spirit of the world. The two principles are antagonistic. The natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Continuing, it says, but today in the religious world, there are multitudes who, as they believe, are working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ as an earthly and temporal dominion. Now, listen to this. It's very important. They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. The ruler in its courts and camps, its legislative halls, its palaces and marketplaces. They expect him to rule through legal enactments and forced by human authority. Since Christ is not now here in person, they themselves will undertake to act in his stead to execute the laws of his kingdom. The establishment of such a kingdom is what the Jews desired in the days of Christ. They would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion, to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God, and to make them the expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36, he would not accept the earthly throne. The contrast is so clear. Jesus, when he came to this earth, he did come to establish the kingdom. This is why we are called today as his disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom. But the first kingdom Jesus came to establish was an internal kingdom. It was one that was built upon the kingdom of grace. It was one that was supposed to really work to regenerate the heart, because that's what the kingdom of grace does. Grace changes the heart of a man. It changes the heart of a woman. The problem was that the Jews of Christ's day, they wanted a kingdom to be set up, but it had nothing to do with changing the heart. They just wanted an external rule. They just wanted Jesus to set up a kingdom that ruled people, told them what to do, or else. And so it is that when you're studying this chapter, no outward show. It's focused on the first kingdom that Jesus came to set up, how the Jews and the disciples misunderstood this kingdom and how Christ wanted to make it plain. It is when we understand this context that when you read the third paragraph, which says the government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand, we're crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. Why? Because you cannot externally, by force, by rule, change people's hearts. This was not what Jesus came to establish. He did not come to establish that kingdom. He came first to establish the kingdom of grace, which works internally. Civil reforms would not meet this issue. Therefore, he sought no effort to bring about civil reform to establish the kingdom of grace. It says he attacked no national abuses nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments. Why? Because he understood they cannot help in establishing the kingdom that was the focus for Jesus, which was an internal kingdom of grace that actually regenerates the heart. This is where the government can play no role. And that is the truth even today. 
This is where no governmental power, there's no law in the existence of humanity that can get a person to change their heart. Only the gospel of God's grace can do that. And so it closes by saying, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy, you see, Jesus wanted to cure the problem. He didn't want to just treat the symptom. He wanted to cure the problem. It says not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. That is the context. It by no means was saying that Christ does not believe in civil reform. Otherwise, you'd have to tear out pages from the Old Testament, like Exodus 21 through 24. You'd have to tear out pages like Leviticus 18 and 19. You would have to tear out pages like Isaiah 58 or Romans chapter 13. You'd have to tear those pages out. If you believed that Jesus just doesn't believe that there's a place that law exists and that there are times that we have to address it. You would have to tear out our history of the abolitionist work of our pioneers, including Ellen White. The activism that you would see with our pioneers and Ellen White, where sometimes problems came where they wanted to move liquor stores near our schools and they would vote to have those liquor stores either removed or not set up. We would have to explain why is it that we rejoice over A.T. Jones going to government to oppose the establishment of a Sunday law in 1888. So by no means was Jesus saying, no, we don't deal with government at all because government is God's minister. Romans 13, verse four. It's just Desire of Ages 509, paragraph three, was speaking in reference to the type of kingdom Christ came to set up. And Christ knew for this kingdom, no external measure of any kind could get it done. That is the clarity of what Desire of Ages 509 paragraph three is teaching. By no means was it saying we never address civil laws and never seek civil reforms for the betterment of mankind when we're dealing with specific and certain issues, especially issues of social justice. By no means was Desire of Ages 509 paragraph three teaching that, and that needs to be made clear. It seems like that quote taken into context is more of an indictment of apostate Protestantism trying to legislate morality. Exactly. Exactly, Peter. And this is what we're not teaching from Desire of Ages 509. We're teaching something else. And that's prophetic of what's going on right now. Very much so. So now I'm wondering, how should Seventh-day Adventists speak out against social injustices? How should they be involved should they be aligned with certain organizations or should they do it on their own? Or what is some counsel that we could have if we want to speak out of the injustices of this day? You know, we have to be very prayerful and careful when we join with organizations, especially when they have such incredible agendas uh, that are set up because we don't want our good to be evil spoken of. We as a church believe everyone does have rights. We believe that all rights should be protected, uh, whether it's gay rights, whether it's, you know, uh, rights for certain classes of people, certain race groups, as we as often called. You know, we believe in that. We advocate that, you know, God teaches very clearly we are all of one blood, Acts 17, 26, and we should see ourselves as the human race predominantly. And therefore, you know, everyone should have rights. And so, yes, there we should be advocates of other people's rights. And there's nothing wrong with that. When we join with an organization, we have to know how to clearly draw certain lines. 
Um, an example is the, the WTCU in history, the Women's uh, Temperance Christian Temperance Union, WCTU. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, they were a Christian organization. Okay, they wanted to uplift Jesus and they fought against the usage of things like alcohol and, you know, snuff and smoking and things of that nature, which we also agree with as well. There was a lot more common ground than there was uncommon ground as it related to us working with them, even though we knew that they did believe in Sunday sacredness. And so as a result of that, we knew that, yes, we can join with them when it came to fighting against, you know, the poisons of the world that were destroying Americans and again, liquor and, and snuff and smoking and things of that nature. And we were able to do that yet hold clearly to the lines of letting them know we are Sabbath keepers. We believe in the 10 commandments and et cetera, et cetera. And they did not have a problem with that. And sometimes we even had great platforms. Uh, Ellen White herself would go into Methodist churches and other churches and preach the gospel from those relationships. Well, Today, there's probably the, the most renowned movement to fight in reference to social justice is Black Lives Matter. The only challenge that we have is I'm not sure if we are communicating very clearly and carefully to the movement Black Lives Matter that there are certain things and certain tenets that we do not agree with. There are certain things that we are cautious of and there are certain things that we believe are flat out wrong and we do not endorse. And these are things like when they want to destroy the Western, what they call the Western concept of the nuclear family. Well, that's, that's a terrible uh, goal. Uh, we, we don't want to join with that in any stretch of the imagination. There are certain things that Black Lives Matter may stand for that totally violates biblical Christian principle. So if somebody's going to join with an organization like that, you have to ask yourself, is this going to do more good or harm by linking with such organizations? And... If we were to do it, we definitely want to make it very clear what we are for and what we are against. And then if the two cannot walk together, lest they be agreed, then it's better that we do it separately. I don't believe such discussions are, being, are happening right now. I'm not aware of any such discussion. We are seeing people just jump on a bandwagon of a term Black Lives Matter. Now, I do believe Black lives do matter, but I'm very cautious of the organization Black Lives Matter because there are some things that they stand for that is flat out sinful and against the word of God. And if I join with a group like that, I want to make sure that I am not something that God is not the author of, and that is confusion. And so right now, unless we're able to draw the lines very carefully and very prayerfully and have the right discussions and right communications, I personally would caution any Seventh-day Adventist Christian for joining with an organization like Black Lives Matter. I would definitely caution them tremendously before the right conversations are had and the right lines are drawn. Otherwise, we might find ourselves possibly working more against than for the cause of God. But can we join with organizations? You know, hopefully there's more out there than just Black Lives Matter. They're the ones that's getting all the press. But are there other organizations that could exist that are really just for social justice issues, putting away of certain laws and what have you? And making sure that people can be okay. Yep, I'm sure there are organizations like that. And can we join with organizations based on principle? Yes, we can. What are some things that we can do? Well, number one, we very much should be determined, Peter. I mean, determined that 
if I have not made intentional efforts to help uplift downtrodden communities with my resources, with my presence, with my advocacy, and the list goes on, that should be the first reform for every Seventh-day Adventist Christian. So the first way that you can do it is start being more involved in the communities that you know are downtrodden. How do you do that? The principles of Isaiah 58 are phenomenal. You know, you find out what are the people lacking? What are they suffering with? Because the reality is, Peter, I know people don't like hearing this, but it's, it's the truth, man. Yes, we should be disgusted when we see a white police officer brutally murder a black man or a black woman. We, we should be disgusted with that. But we should be equally, if not more, disgusted when we see black people killing black people at far more alarming, cold, callous manners, like how these white officers have killed people. And I'm not seeing the uproar on that, especially from Black Lives Matter. So again, Black Lives Matter sometimes is a little inconsistent, but the movement. But what are some ways that we can really get involved? Is start really saying, you know what? I want to start doing what I can as an individual to see what role can I play in looking at a community that is downtrodden and hurting? And how can I, not just for a week or not just for a month, but how can I consistently, until the, some problems are solved, work with these people, whether they're Hispanic, Asian, white, or black, and work in these communities and help build them up with my influence, with my effort, with my resources, whatever it is that I can do, constantly showing up and letting these people know that I love and I care for them. That is obviously what I would say should be point number one. Point number two, City Hall. There are times that you can go to City Hall and you can make your voice known that you oppose certain laws. Here's a great example. Breonna Taylor died because of something called a no-knock warranty. A no-knock warranty. It's a principle. It's a law that was allowed for police officers to not have to knock before entering into a home based on suspicion of potentially drug dealing or things of that nature. One death is too much. We have to be mindful of the fact that with Breonna Taylor, that, that's an atrocity that should have never happened. So what's a way we can address it? We address it by going to City Hall. We address it by getting in touch with attorneys. We address it by saying, what can be done? What do you need from us as civilians, as people of the community, that we see a danger in the no-knock warranties and we would like for that to be changed, if not completely eliminated? As a result of people actually doing this, we already have succeeded in seeing reforms take place in our society in specific states where you cannot just exercise and use a no-knock warranty in the manner that it was used with these police officers, plain clothed, entering into a home with guns drawn, and then obviously killing an innocent person. So that's an example, is we can actually approach our city halls. We can approach civil attorneys and we can talk with them about some of the concerns we have about certain laws that are in place that are more possible of hurting us than helping us. And we can speak to that. We can, like our pioneers of old, cast in votes on these issues to say we are not supportive of this law being in existence as stands and we would like to see adjustments, if not complete elimination. That's something else people can do in a very real, practical way. Are you having some pushback for asserting the need to speak out on social issues? Strange enough, so far, no. I have friends or associates that 
maybe are not saying anything. Some of them I found on Facebook, some of them are white, and they put up statements on Facebook that was cold. Uh, it was dismissive. And I would go ahead and challenge them on Facebook and just say, well, what do you mean by this quote? Uh, what do you mean by this statement you just put there? Uh, there's one brother that, you know, as far as I was concerned, I thought I, I would hope that we are brothers, but, it, you know, he put up a quote that concerned me. And, you know, and he, he put up Desire of Ages 509, and I, I put up a, a balance to that quote. Uh, he never commented. Then, later on, he said, in 10,000 years, it won't matter. And he put that up on a quote. And when he put that up, you know, I said, what won't matter? And so he didn't answer again. And some people responded to him and said, well, it matters now. And, you know, and, and he's white. And, you know, and I thought to myself, I said, that's a very dismissive and that's a very cold statement. And so, you know, do I have some fellow workers, associates, fellow pastors, fellow elders, fellow evangelists that are kind of not saying anything? I definitely have that people who are, have put up stuff and said stuff. But then when you would expect them to comment, they're not commenting. They're not saying anything. Um, so I get more of that. But I have had no one. With the messages that I've put up recently, the I can't breathe message, you know, the message of it's time to go to work, part one, part two. I've had no one oppose me yet on the matter. And so right now I'm thankful for that. And I'm just hoping, well, Lord, I hope that it's clear enough. I try to be clear when I teach the word and that people can kind of say, all right, well, you know, and either they'll reject it or they'll accept it and, and realize there's something that I need to do. But thank God so far, no, I have not had, quote unquote, opposition. If anything, I've gotten just a little silence. And by the way, we're going to have the links of these messages on the description of this episode on our website for people to access. Continuing on, is there racism within the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Have you felt it? I see you as an international speaker that has been blessed to preach in churches all around the world white churches, African-American churches, Asian churches, overseas. What do you see about race relations within the church? It's definitely there. I've had friends who are white. I actually know they mean well. It's just probably they don't hang around enough black people sometimes. So they'll make a statement and they'll just say, uh, you know, your people can run very fast. And they'll say that to me. And or they'll say that to one of my fellow workers who's also black and, and, and it'll be a white person, influential white person that'll say, you know, your people can run really fast. And it's kind of like you'll, you'll educate them and say, um, you, you probably don't want to say that. You know, that can sound a little bit stigmatizing, stereotyping. It can come off offensive. I'm not offended, but you might say something that can prove a little offensive to somebody else. Um, I've had people say to me things like you articulate yourself very well. I'm not used to seeing that amongst black people. Why is it that you speak differently than the average black person? Well, that's pretty much a racist statement. So, you know, again, did that person mean any harm by doing that? Probably not. They probably were just being genuine and asking. I don't know. I can't read their hearts. But at the same time, I would caution them again and say, well, you know, um, there's some things you just may not want to say. There's some things you may want to be very careful about what you say because it can really come off very offensive. So have I seen racism in different ways? And, I, and I've seen worse than that. I mean, I've, I've seen people just get really terribly treated. So 
Is racism existent in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Yes, it is. Is it from the top down? Absolutely. And so the reality is that it's there. What I think this season has done, this season we're in right now, where the racial divides are really coming up, it's being talked about, is it's given us a platform now that we could say, you know what, it's time to deal with this. It's time to just really talk a little bit more forward about this. And I've been playing my part. There's, there's certain big time evangelists that I've worked side by side with that I've sent some personal emails out to them to just say, you know, I think we need to start talking about this more. I appreciate people like Ivor Myers, people like Loami Richardson, uh, Dr. Stephen Lee, you know, who does some pretty awesome research. Uh, Lily Patel, yourself, Peter, many others of different nation, kindreds, tongue and people that are saying, folks, we need to talk about this. We need to deal with this. And so I'm grateful that once again, I'm seeing Romans 8.28 come to pass. I was teaching last night to a group of students and I told them, I said, you know, George Floyd is in an unconscious state right now. But I said, but by God's grace on resurrection morning that he's there, boy, is he going to be amazed at how his name and an incident that happened with him didn't just shake up the world, but it even played a role in shaking up God's remnant church. He had no idea that his life would have this degree of impact, but it's by and large what happened to George Floyd that has gotten a lot of Seventh-day Adventists talking more about racial divides, that has us talking more about regional and state conferences and what can we do about that? You know, what, is there anything we can do to, to, to promote a greater unity? You know, and the list goes on. So I just marvel at how sometimes even the death of a man can bring about a lot of good. And so, yes, there's racism amongst us, but by God's grace, we're dealing with it more and I pray that it doesn't stop until it's dealt with. Now, I want to ask this question because, again, as I scour social media, there are Adventists that are beating the drumbeat, as he would, saying that racism is a fiction, that's a liberal left agenda. Now, you lived in the Deep South at one time in rural oh, yeah. Georgia. I stayed with you at one time for a weekend. And that, by the yeah. way, thank you for your hospitality. Always, man. You're my brother. <laughs> Amen. You're my brother as well. Did you experience anything living in the deep south in the rural areas in regards to racism? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, for somebody to think that racism is fictional, I'm just kind of like, you really have your head in the sand. Um, you know, there are cases. I mean, th there's, there's some things out there. I'll, I'll give you an example. Because even more than racism, Peter, is what we call uh, systemic racism, right? And, you know, there's racism on many levels. So I'll give you an example here. So this is an example that I, I just think to myself, wow, we, we have to pay attention to things like this. So anyhow, yes, there's racism for sure. We've seen people get treated in terrible manners. I've seen everything from being followed in a store uh, when all you're doing is shopping and it's the white store owner and it's the black customer. And, you know, the person is watching you, they're following you. They want to know, what do you want? And then you watch a white person come in and they get, they're not privileged to get those questions asked. You see a ton of that, a ton of that. Um, in addition to that, you walk in a store and I've gotten this a few times, you know, uh, a white man walks in the store. Hello, sir. Uh, when a black man like myself walks in the store, yo, what's up, bro? 
And it's like, okay, what in the world made you greet me like that versus how you just greeted this white gentleman who walked in? So yes, do I see stuff like that? Too often, too frequently. But then there's other things that can speak to, you know, systemic racism. So here's a great example of this. True story, all right? Same crime, same courtroom, same judge, same criminal history. 1,300%. Watch this. 1,300% difference in sentencing. So for somebody to say that racism, whether it be on a systemic level or on a day-to-day practical level, doesn't exist. They have their heads buried in the sand. They are growing up in a very sheltered environment. And they have not gotten in touch with reality at all. So there's no question that racism is real. Racism exists. And it's not just white towards black. It's black towards white. There's no question about it. A lot of black people do not like white people. They, they, they cast judgments, which is evil and sinful and wrong. But nevertheless, there's black people that do it to that. Peter, there's black people against black people. Haitians don't like Jamaicans. Jamaicans don't like Trinidadians. Dominican Republic doesn't like Puerto Rican. I mean, it just gets bad. So there's bigotry, racism, and so on that's within the very same quote-unquote nationality, as we'll just call it Black people, but then you see it in the Hispanic community, you see it in the white community. So racism exists on multi-levels. Well, it's in the Asian community as well, Japanese and Koreans and whatnot. Thank you. Exactly. So racism is an evil. It's a fruit, not the root. And what we need to do is realize the gospel really is what solves this. The role of law is beautifully stated by Martin Luther King Jr., He said, I cannot, according to the law, make you love me. But he says, but I can use the law to keep you from lynching me. And that is the role. That's what Romans 13 teaches, is that the law is there to deal with evildoers. It's not there to deal with people who do good. It's there to deal with people who do evil and to put a check on evil behavior. And we should use the law appropriately for that end, to put a check on evil behaviors so that they don't get out of control and oppress, you know, a certain society or class of people. But the bottom line is, man, racism so exists. And for somebody to deny that just means they're really out of touch with what's going on in the world. Final question. Do we as a church have an opportunity to do something special right now in the midst of this crisis? Well, we have an opportunity, Peter, like never before. You know, we have an opportunity to give the gospel in both demonstration and proclamation. Imagine, Peter, imagine a group of people who profess a similar message, the same message. Imagine a group of people where you can go into their churches, you can look at their conferences, and you don't see dividing lines of segregation that people literally treat each other like brother or sister. You know, we, we're so modern now in our world that we're now on very first name basis. We call each other Bob and Mary and Sue and Sam and all these things. But, you know, those precious times when we would say brother so-and-so, you know, sister so-and-so. And it was a little reminder to us that, hey, you're my family and I should treat you as such. So imagine a place where, where we could actually demonstrate the gospel, demonstrate the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17, that we can literally live the principles of Acts chapter four and make sure that we all have things in common. 
that we care for one another in real, practical, tangible ways. Right now, I'm here at Meet Ministry. This is a, this is a predominantly black organization, one of very few that's been around for three decades. And there are other organizations out there that's been around for a long time. And man, it's like they can go to ASI and they could get thousands of dollars on a regular basis to be supportive. Wouldn't it be awesome if at an ASI it could be more evenly distributed, that maybe something could say, hey, you know what, here's some other organizations that we also can support and show, hey, we're just as much behind you and for your success in the gospel work as we are behind organizations that we've become very comfortable with in supporting. I actually read this in Gospel Workers, page 457, 457. We're actually told that we should not just keep giving to the same organizations that we've been used to giving for a long time, but there's other organizations that are working. Wouldn't it be awesome just to see that there's more of an even distribution of these funds to help ministries stay strong and flourishing and growing? And if we had a true, genuine love one for another, and then when we go out to do gospel work, that we can go ahead and represent the gospel again in our diversity going into all of the various communities, downtrodden and otherwise, and preaching and teaching a very relevant message for the time while demonstrating our care and our love and the principles of Isaiah 58 and Acts chapter 4. This is what will convince the world. Listen, it's no rocket science, man. Jesus told us, John 13, 35, John 17 and verse 21. He literally said, if you have my love and if you demonstrate the unity that I have with the Father, if you demonstrate that unity, he says people will believe. People will believe that I came and that I'm coming again. And so there's no rocket science here. We need to fulfill John 17, 21. We need to fulfill John 13, 35. And it will convince the masses with the message we have. It will convince the masses. These are the people of God. These people have been with Jesus. We need to hear what they have to say. And they're eventually going to say, I want what you people have. This is my hope and my prayer will take place. And we're promised it will by the grace of God. I just need to ask myself, as you need to ask yourself and all of those who will be listening to this need to ask themselves, will I be counted amongst the team that God is setting up? Because he's setting up the team. We just want to make sure that we don't end up castaways. So, you know, that, that's my hope and prayer, man. But boy, do we have a message that is designed to solve a lot of these problems in this world and usher in our blessed Savior. Elder Lemon, thank you so much again for being with us in such short notice. Oh, man, it's my pleasure, man. Anytime. It's always a joy to do ministry with you in any and every way. So praise God. I'm glad. I hope it goes out. And I hope whoever listens will truly be blessed and touched and really make some serious decisions. Amen. Praise the Lord. And before we close, can you have a closing word of prayer for us? Oh, I would love that. Our loving Father, Lord, we're so thankful. We are grateful, dear God, that you are merciful, long-suffering, full of grace and truth. And Lord, we're grateful that you are all those things towards us because we needed it. And Father, I'm just praying that as we have talked about some very vital points, there's much you want to accomplish in the society of today. And your people have the solution. The gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. I pray that you might motivate us, activate us to greater action. Help us, Lord, to once again be the head and not the tail. That we might show what protest really looks like after the order of heaven. And I pray, Father, that much fruit would come about as a result of it. And that your name may be glorified and we would be edified and souls would be one to your truth, to your heart 
So may we be faithful. Bless all of those who will listen to this podcast. And I pray that it will truly be like meat in due season. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.